You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody's having a great week. This week was pretty low-key for me as I saw more than one other person over the weekend, and it's taken me about five days to recover from that level of social interaction. Thanks, quarantine. This week on two-sentence movie reviews of movies I saw in a movie theater, just one, um, it's In the Heights. Now, you could see In the Heights at home if you have HBO Max because that's what they're doing this year, but you're not going to want to do that. Hearing and feeling that music all around you while watching this absolute gem of a movie is by far the way to view this. This movie will hopefully become the bedrock on which all further movie musical filmmakers build their musical adaptations from. John Chu, the director, and, you know, everyone else involved managed to take elements from the musical production of In the Heights whilst making it its own thing, which is not an easy feat. Sea cats. I will say, though, if you don't like musicals, I don't believe this movie will change your mind. I loved musicals, so I'll love this, but definitely keep that in mind before you go to the theater. On to this week's topic. Every episode presents its own challenges when writing and researching it, but this one took the cake as far as difficulty goes because there are so many different versions and rabbit holes and exploitations of this woman's life and the circumstances surrounding her untimely death. This week, we're covering the life of Elizabeth Short, whom history would remember better as the Black Dahlia. Elizabeth Short had alleged aspirations of being an actress, dreams that were cut short by a, to this day, unknown assailant. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. On the morning of January 15, 1947, Betty Bursinger was taking her three-year-old daughter out on a stroll to the local shoe repair shop in the Lamert Park section of South Los Angeles, which is now the Crenshaw neighborhood. Looking out across a vacant lot, she spotted what she believed to be a ghostly white store mannequin strewn about the weeds. Betty's discovery set off a nearly 75-year mystery that took the darkest parts of Tinseltown to the front page of the newspapers. In the Hyde Park neighborhood of Boston, on January 29, 1924, a baby named Elizabeth Short was born, the third of five daughters to Cleo and Phoebe May Short. Elizabeth would spend the majority of her formative years around the Boston area. 
Elizabeth's father supported his family by building many golf courses, an occupation that kept the family comfortable until the stock market crash of 1929. The family's money was wiped out instantaneously, and shortly after that, Cleo disappeared. His car was discovered on a bridge, but Cleo was nowhere to be found. It was believed that he had committed suicide until a letter arrived at the short residence in 1942 from Cleo, apologizing for what he'd done and stating that he had gone west to California to work as an accountant to support the family. Back in Massachusetts, young Elizabeth was plagued with breathing issues, including bronchitis and asthma, so the frigid Boston winters were not ideal for the young girl. She would spend her late teen winters in Florida with family friends to ensure her health through the winter months. At 16, Elizabeth would drop out of high school in her sophomore year. Elizabeth briefly lived with her father out west, whom she hadn't seen since she was six, after he'd moved to Los Angeles in 1943 from Vallejo. The two ended up having a massive fight, however, about Elizabeth's duties around the house, and Elizabeth left her father after only living there for about three weeks and hitchhiked to an Air Force base in Lumpuk, California, about 150 miles from L.A. There, she got a job at the Post Exchange on the base. Her boss at the base would describe her as shy, someone who refrained from smoking and hardly ever drank. Soon, though, as many of us do the second we're out on our own without parental influence for the first time, this changed. Elizabeth began dating soldiers on the base, and her demeanor reportedly shifted quite drastically from there. The now 19-year-old's antics began with dating and casually drinking and continued to escalate until she was eventually arrested for juvenile drinking after being busted with a group of soldiers. The officer who arrested her took a shine to Elizabeth and even let her stay with her until she could secure a train ticket back to Massachusetts. Years later, that officer, Mary Unifer, would be the one that would tell the press about one of Elizabeth's most identifiable features a rose tattoo on her leg. Elizabeth's return to Massachusetts was a short one, and she eventually made her way back to Long Beach, California, by way of Florida and Chicago in July 1946, and stayed with one of her soldier friends. The two struck up a relationship, though it was reportedly quite rocky. When he was sent to North Carolina to work as a commercial pilot, Elizabeth stayed in Southern California. He continued to support her from afar, sending her money every once in a while. The last letter he received from Elizabeth arrived on January 8th, the week before she was killed. In October 1946, Elizabeth was broke and living in a hotel room with two other women. Sometimes she worked as a waitress, but this was far and few between and accentuated by long periods of unemployment. When later interviewed by police, her roommates would state that Elizabeth would go out with them and party with them and their boyfriends. The boyfriends would describe her as their fifth wheel and that they'd often buy her meals because she was always, quote, broke and hungry. While Elizabeth's mother, as well as some people she grew up with, would describe her as a wannabe actress, it did not appear that Elizabeth had made a ton of waves to make this dream come true, if this was the case. At the time of her death, she told her mother in a letter she was working in a hospital in San Diego, over a hundred miles away from Hollywood. On the last day Elizabeth was definitively seen alive, she was returning from San Diego with married salesman Robert Red Manley. The two had been carrying on for about a month. Anytime he was in San Diego, they'd go out on dates. 
And when her living situation in San Diego fell through, she called Red and asked him to pick her up and take her back to Los Angeles. He would drop her off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles around 6 p.m. on January 9th, six days before her body was found. He would later tell police that she was going to that hotel to meet her sister. Staff of the Biltmore would later recall having seen Elizabeth using the lobby telephone that evening. Shortly after, she was allegedly seen by patrons of the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge at 754 South Olive Street, which is approximately 0.4 miles away from the Biltmore Hotel. None of these sightings, however, can be concretely proven. Manley was briefly considered a suspect of Elizabeth's death, but nothing was ever concretely proven that he committed the crime. In a cruel twist of fate, Manley would die 39 years to the day in a fall at his Anaheim apartment from the last day he saw Elizabeth. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, you know that we spend as little time as possible hyping up conspiracy theories, of which there are many for this case. Going forward, we are focusing on facts. Anything you heard that doesn't come up is likely rumors that were drummed up in the tabloids and the newspapers and were later debunked or that were made by people who were related to suspects of Elizabeth's murder. As you'll see, sometimes the legend of something overshadows its reality. Back to the morning of January 15th, 1947. Betty Bursinger, realizing that the mannequin she had found was actually the body of a young woman, rushed home to report the body to the police before continuing on her errand. Apparently, it was a very important pair of shoes she was getting repaired that day. When police arrived on the scene, they were shocked at the state of the bodily remains of Elizabeth Short. If you're squeamish about murder stuff, you might want to skip ahead like a minute or so. I won't go terribly into the graphic details, but I know that some of y'all aren't into that at all, so fair warning. Elizabeth's severely mutilated body was severed at the waist and drained of blood, leaving her skin a ghostly white, which was why Betty had first believed it to be a mannequin. The medical examiners would later determine that Elizabeth had been dead for around 10 hours prior to the discovery of the body, leaving her time of death either sometime during the evening of January 14th or the early morning hours of January 15th. Elizabeth's face had been slashed from the corners of her mouth to her ears, creating a wound known as a Glasgow smile. She had several cuts on her thighs and breasts, where entire portions of flesh had been sliced away. The lower half of her body was positioned a foot away from the upper, and her intestines had been tucked neatly beneath her buttocks. Elizabeth's corpse had been posed, with her eyes wide open, hands over her head, and her legs spread apart. The body had also been washed by the killer. The autopsy would discover that many of the wounds, including the severing of her upper and lower halves, occurred post-mortem. The Glasgow smile, however, was done while she was still living. The cuts were described as clean, meaning they were likely administered by someone with medical knowledge. A lot of other terrible things were done to her as well, but I'm not going to go into it any further than that. If you want to know the whole McCoy, it's not that hard to find. Elizabeth's ultimate cause of death was determined to be a cerebral hemorrhage due to homicidal violence and shock. 
Elizabeth was eventually identified via her fingerprints using early fax machine technology called Sound Photo, which was being used by the FBI. Her fingerprints were on file, of course, due to her arrest in 1943, which made it possible to identify her without the public's assistance. Elizabeth's mother was notified of her daughter's death, not from the FBI, whom had made the identification, but by the LA Examiner, a newspaper owned by William Randolph Hearst. They reached out to her mother, telling her that Elizabeth had won a beauty contest and pumped the woman for information about her daughter. It was only after that prying that the reporters revealed that her daughter had in fact been brutally murdered. The newspaper then offered to pay her airfare and accommodations if she would travel to Los Angeles to help with the police investigation. That was yet another ploy as the newspaper kept her away from the police and other reporters to protect its scoop. The Examiner and the Los Angeles Herald Express, which was also owned by Hearst, sensationalized the case with one article from The Examiner changing the black-tailored suit Short was last seen wearing to, quote, a tight skirt and a sheer blouse. The media at this time loved to nickname crimes, and this one was the crown jewel of crimes. They would nickname Elizabeth the Black Dahlia and describe her as an adventuress who prowled Hollywood Boulevard in sleek black clothes and jet black hair, with a flower always in her hair. Some say she was called the Black Dahlia before her death, but there is no concrete proof of this. Additional newspaper reports, such as one published in the Los Angeles Times on January 17th, deemed Elizabeth's murder a sex fiend slaying. Whomever Elizabeth had been was about to be bogged down in the sensationalizing of her barbaric murder. Whether or not Elizabeth wanted to be an actress may have been a fabrication of the papers as well, though her mother apparently went on record saying it was in fact an aspiration of her daughter's. Though, this was likely during the papers hounding her for information, during which time she was likely under incredible duress as her daughter had just died. The truth of the matter is, is that the truth didn't matter to the press or anyone reading the stories they published, because what they had made up was an incredible story. This became the legend of the Black Dahlia, the one mixed from facts of the case and fabrications of the media, which amalgamated into the story as most people know it today. The life of Elizabeth Short has been lost to time and between the lines of the publications, sensationalizing her murder. Instead, she has become the Black Dahlia, a symbol of the dangers lurking in the shadows of Tinseltown. Six days after Elizabeth's murder, her killer allegedly contacted the editor of the Los Angeles Examiner, congratulating him on the newspaper's coverage of the case, and stated that they eventually planned on turning themselves in, but not before allowing police to pursue him a little bit further. They also told them to expect some, quote, souvenirs belonging to Beth Short in the mail soon. Three days later, nine days after the body was discovered, a suspicious manila envelope was discovered by a U.S. Postal Service worker. The envelope had been addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. 
The words used to address the package were cut from movie advertisements from the newspapers they were addressed to. Additionally, a large message on the face of the envelope read, Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. The manila envelope contained names written on pieces of paper and an address book which was missing a few pages with the name Mark Hansen embossed on the cover. The packet had been cleaned with gasoline. Despite the efforts to clean the packet, though, several partial fingerprints were lifted from the envelope and sent to the FBI for testing. However, the prints were compromised in transit and thus could not be properly analyzed. The same day the packet was received by the examiner, a handbag and a black suede shoe were reported to have been seen on top of a garbage can in an alley a short distance from Norton Avenue, two miles from where Short's body had been discovered. The items were recovered by police, but they were also wiped clean with gasoline, destroying any fingerprints. Thirteen letters would follow addressed to the police and the press, taunting them as the investigation continued. They would all be signed, Black Dahlia Avenger. Police were feeling the pressure to solve this case, as it was the fourth strange murder in Los Angeles in six weeks. An apparent copycat killing also occurred about two weeks after the Dahlias, which we'll get to a little bit later in the episode. With the arrival of an address book with someone's name on it, the police obviously first went to Mark Hansen. Hansen was a wealthy local nightclub and theater owner. Elizabeth and some friends had stayed at a home owned by Hansen, and according to some other sources, he confirmed that the purse and shoe discovered in the alley belonged to Elizabeth. Ann Toth, Elizabeth's friend and one-time roommate, told investigators that Short had recently rejected sexual advances from Hansen and suggested it as a potential cause for him to kill her. However, Hansen was ultimately cleared of suspicion in the case. 75 men within the address book were also interviewed, but again this led nowhere. This included Red Manley, the last person who was known to see her alive. He was subjected to several polygraphs before ultimately being cleared. In mid-February 1947, the LAPD served a warrant to the USC Medical School, which was located near-ish the site where Elizabeth's body had been discovered, requesting a complete list of the program's students. The university agreed to give it to them as long as the students' identities remained private and out of the case files, unless obviously they found a murderer from it, a promise that the LAPD kept. Background checks were conducted for the 300 names, but they yielded no results. A total of 750 investigators from the LAPD and other departments worked on the case during its initial stages, including 400 sheriff's deputies and 250 CSP officers. Various locations were searched for potential evidence, including storm drains throughout Los Angeles, abandoned structures, and various sites along the LA River, but the searches yielded no further evidence. City Councilman Lloyd G. Davis posted a $10,000 reward, equivalent to about $116,000 today, for information leading to Short's killer. After the announcement of the reward, various persons came forward with confessions, most of which police dismissed as false. Altogether, there were 27 false confessions regarding the Black Dahlia murder. Several of these false confessors were charged with obstruction of justice. Don't lie to the cops, kids. Two weeks after the murder, another letter was received by the examiner, this time handwritten. It read, quote, 
Here it is, turning in on WED, Jan 29, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger. The letter also named a location at which the supposed killer would turn himself in. Police waited at the location on the morning of January 29th, but the alleged killer never showed. Instead, at 1 p.m., the examiner offices received another cut-and-pasted letter which read, quote, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. Whether either of these letters was legit or not is unknown. On February 1st, the Los Angeles Daily News reported that the case had, quote, run into a stone wall with no new leads for investigators to pursue. The examiner continued to run stories on the murder and the investigation, which was front-page news in Los Angeles for 35 days following the discovery of Elizabeth's body. By the spring of 1947, the murder was quickly becoming a cold case. Sergeant Finnis Brown, one of the lead detectives on the case, blamed the press for compromising the investigation through reporters probing of details and unverified reporting. To this day, no one knows for certain what led to the death of Elizabeth Short, but there are some compelling suspects. So, who could have killed Elizabeth Short? The potential perpetrator of Elizabeth Short's murder has taken on a life of its own far beyond the woman or her horrific murder. There were at least two dozen suspects fingered by the L.A. District Attorney, but let's take a look at the most compelling and a couple weird ones that have not been mentioned in the episode thus far. There was Walter Bailey, an L.A. surgeon who lived within a block of Elizabeth's body's dump site. His daughter knew Elizabeth's sister, and she had actually even been the matron of honor at her wedding. Bailey died about a year after Elizabeth's murder, and his autopsy revealed he was suffering from a degenerative brain disease. After his death, his widow alleged that his mistress knew a, quote, terrible secret, and she was made the main beneficiary upon his death as a result. Bailey was never an official suspect in the case, despite his medical training and proximity to the Short family. In secret testimony, Detective Harry Hansen, one of the original investigators, told a grand jury in 1949 that in his opinion, the killer was a, quote, top medical man and a fine surgeon. Bailey's neurodegenerative condition was known to produce violent behavior, an otherwise passive individual. His surgical specializations included mastectomies and hysterectomies, both of which were done to Elizabeth's corpse. Detectives also discovered that he and his mistress would, at dinner time, watch movies of surgeries and autopsies. Then there were a few female suspects, which are all kind of wonky. One theory held that because Elizabeth had checked her baggage, including her clothing and cosmetics, a week before she died, she must have been staying with another woman, whom presumably would have lent Elizabeth the essentials during that intervening time. The newspapers took that and went, oh, maybe she's a lesbian. And then there were a bunch of like false confessions about people going, I was her lover and I killed her. Not going into those. They were all false. And it was also said that she was meeting her sister. So that pretty much answers that question right there. 
Another theory was that it might be a woman and that the assailant bisected Short's body because she was not strong enough to move it in one piece. Another suspect is listed simply as queer woman surgeon in the L.A. District Attorney's files on the case. No other information given. Great police work there. The suspect that's probably gotten the most attention in recent years, partially because of books published by his son, a retired LAPD detective, as well as TNT series I Am the Night, is Dr. George Hodel. To be honest, he's my favorite suspect too. Hodel was born and raised in Los Angeles. By the 1940s, Hodel was an affluent member of Los Angeles society with a successful medical practice to his name, and he was described as dashing and having a high IQ. Hodel at this time was running a venereal disease clinic, giving him knowledge of everyone's dirty laundry in town. Hodel was not a practicing surgeon, however, but he had studied to become one, meaning he was equipped with the basic knowledge. Hodel was one of the people interviewed by the police for Elizabeth's murder as they believed they were looking for a doctor, but initially didn't get anything super concrete on him. Hodel was also looked at for the murder of Jean French, the woman whom was believed to have been a Dahlia copycat killer, which I mentioned earlier. In 1949, Hodel's teenage daughter accused him of sexual abuse, leading to her becoming pregnant and him giving her an illegal abortion. The case went to trial, and this led to the public connecting Hodel Hodel's sex crimes with that of the Dahlia case. Hodel was eventually acquitted after other family members said that Tamar, his daughter, was lying. With the connection made, at least eight witnesses claimed firsthand knowledge of a 1946 relationship between Short and Hodel, the full details of which only came to light in 2003 when a George Hodel Black Dahlia file was discovered in a vault at the LA District Attorney's Office. The file revealed that in 1950, Hodel was the prime suspect of the Dahlia murder. His private residence was even bugged by the LAPD between February 15th and March 27th, 1950. Transcripts, the surviving ones anyway, of conversations revealed Hodel's references to performing illegal abortions, giving payoffs to law enforcement officials, and to his possible involvement in the deaths of his secretary and Elizabeth Short. The DA tapes recorded him saying, quote, "'Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now.'" They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. Which just seems, you know, pretty suspicious. But I'm guessing that Hodel's influence in the community and his deep, deep pockets probably got him out of trouble or at least bought him enough time to do what he did next. Hodel left slash fled the United States in April 1950, eventually moving to the Philippines where he started a new family and appears to have remained there until 1990 before returning to the United States, settling in San Francisco where he died a year later. After his death, his son, former LAPD detective Steve Hodel, began making claims that he could prove that his father killed Elizabeth Short and soon after published his findings. This investigation kicked off when Steve found two photos amongst his father's things, which he claimed are of Elizabeth Short. Further investigation of those photos have been inconclusive as to whether or not it's actually her. He also believed, like several other eyewitnesses, that Hodel and Elizabeth were carrying on a romantic relationship and that they had been seen together. 
Hodel had the Dahlia letters tested against his father's handwriting, and the forensic experts stated that they were a match, though this could also be confirmation bias. Dr. Hodel's handwriting was also matched against a BD, which had been found on Jean French's body that had been written in lipstick on her abdomen. Further, in 1967, a similar murder to Elizabeth also took place in the Philippines, where the elder Hotel was living at the time. The body was found a half mile from where he lived. Also, there had been reports of cement bags being found near Elizabeth's body, and George Hodel had reportedly had several bags of concrete delivered to his home on the last day Elizabeth had been seen alive. This is just a small amount of the evidence that Steve has, and some of it is actually quite compelling, but a ton of it, including trying to tie his father to the Zodiac killings when he was living in the Philippines, and the body being posed as an homage to his father's favorite artist, Man Ray, tends to get into conspiracy theory town, which we actively reroute from here. George Hodel was clearly a very shitty dude, but whether or not he was Elizabeth Short's murder remains to be seen. Because of the family history, many of Steve's claims have not been taken seriously by the police as they believe it's a man with a personal vendetta. Several people who worked the case, however, are very confident that George Hodel killed Elizabeth Short but could never charge him due to a lack of concrete physical evidence. The case remains open to this day. A crappy side of all of this is the money that has been made off of the death of Elizabeth Short by tons of relatives of the suspects whom are all writing books about how their relative was likely Elizabeth's murderer. Even those with little or no concrete evidence, it hardly matters because everyone wants to get some tea about the Black Dahlia murder. Many of these books have been published in the last 20 years after the person they're claiming did it is gone, so there's no way for them to even give an alibi. Because of this, Elizabeth's life is further sensationalized far beyond the facts. This is partially why there are hundreds of versions of this story and copycat murders and the like, and it's why it took what felt like a lifetime to fact check this episode. It was also a huge bummer to be listening to a lot of my favorite independent podcasts and YouTube crime shows, which were perpetuating one of the conspiracy theories as though it were the truth. Elizabeth's death has also been either the subject or a side plot in several films and TV shows, including the film The Black Dahlia from 2006, the first season of American Horror Story, and the I Am The Night show, picking and choosing from which facts to incorporate into the story to serve the filmmaker or showrunner. At the end of the day, this is the truth. Elizabeth was a young woman with a family that loved her and an entire life ahead of her when she was abducted, brutally murdered, and left to be found in a weedy lot. The legend of the Black Dahlia that rose from the brutality of her death is synonymous with the seedy underbelly of Tinseltown. So, hopefully the next time you hear or see something involving the Black Dahlia, you'll remember the person who tragically lost her life and not a sensationalized version of it. And that's going to do it for this week. 
If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos of each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. I am at the mercy of the algorithms. I'm an independent podcast. So I don't have, you know, big names giving me street cred. So I need you to do that for me. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes, as well as a Venmo code, which is at Tinsel Factory Pod. Any help would be hot. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the short life and tragic death of former child actor Jonathan Brandis. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Thank you.